tell you what you're listening to. Welcome to Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio with Father Richard Simon. I'm here to answer your questions. Have a question? Give us a call. 1-888-914-9149. That's any question you may have about the Lord, the faith, and the church. That's 1-888-914-9149. This is, in fact, a radio show called Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio. Well, hello. I've got some questions in the mail that, uh, well, don't worry. I'll be able to make something up. I'm sure. I mean, I'll be able to figure it out. I'm sure. Let's pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful, and kindle them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit; they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Lord, you taught the hearts of the nations by the light of the Holy Spirit. Grant us by that same Spirit. Have right judgment in all things, and evermore to rejoice in his comfort through Christ our Lord. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Saint Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, all right, let's open the big book on the coffee table, the Bible. Let's look quickly at the first reading. Um, it's, it's, um, it's from Ezekiel, uh, the 18th chapter. Ezekiel was a was a, a prophet in exile, so you know he's he's just speaking to the people. Um, I, I, once again, a, a quick um, what's the word summary of of the problem of the or the dating of the exile. Okay, let let's look at this. A very simple Bible timeline. It's not necessarily exact, but it's useful. 2000 BC, Abraham, followed by Isaac and Jacob. Moses, 1500 BC. David and Solomon, 1000 BC. The return from the exile, 500 BC, and Christ. Zero. You're, well, there was no year zero. Year one. These are not exact dates. They're just kind of to help you. Uh, they're ballpark figures. For people like Abraham, well, guessing is as it should be. People like Moses, mm, guessing is a little more, oh, what's the word? A little more tenuous. Most people would put the Exodus, uh, scholars put the Exodus at 1200 B.C., I'm with the early daters who put it around 1400 BC because uh, that, that 1250 BC date doesn't work archaeologically or even in terms of the text of scripture. Um, these are just approximate dates and they're there to help you kind of develop a structure. So once again, Abraham, 2000 BC, Moses, 1500 BC, really, 1400, maybe 1200, but 1500, nice and even. Uh, then 
David and Solomon 1000, Saul, David, and Solomon, the beginning of the, uh, Hebrew, the Israelite monarchy, 1000 BC, and the return from exile about 500 BC, which means the exile itself was about 580 BC. Now, you know, about the exile, uh, the Babylonians came and destroyed the temple and took people into exile in the Tigris-Euphrates Valley where Judaism really developed. Um, all right. Now, so Ezekiel, where he was, he was born around 622 BC and he lived in Babylon in the Babylonian captivity, uh, around the, the, um, uh, well, the Hebar river. So that that's probable. Uh, he probably died around 570 BC, which is just after the beginning of the exile. So there, that's, that's where he was. And so he was helping people to cope with this terrible tragedy that their nation and their temple had been taken away. And, uh, I say this is where Judaism developed. This is a very important moment in the history of Israel. The northern kingdoms, which are usually called Israel or Samaria or Ephraim sometimes in the Bible, they were taken into exile maybe a century and a half before the the uh, the Judeans, the, the southern provinces of Benjamin and, and, and Judah, into which Simeon had been folded. They lost their identity because they had departed from the worship of, of God in Jerusalem. They had set up their own temples. They had mixed their religion with the local Canaanite religions. Whereas Judah had undergone a religious reform and had, had advanced toward the worship of the one God and the following of the law of Moses. So when they went into exile a century and a half later than Israel, they didn't lose their, their identity. And they were able to come back to Judea when the Persians allowed them, uh, the, what we would today call the Iranians, and they rebuilt their temple, they rebuilt their society. And uh, I think this is a very important thing to remember, that if you lose your religious identity, you lose your identity. Your national identity is dependent on your religious identity. And that's why in this country we are currently losing our identity as Americans, because we saw ourselves as a Judeo-Christian country. And and um, the Bible was fundamental to our, our culture. There was uh, some school board member who considers herself all of these things that I don't want to mention on the radio. Um, she said that they should probably not be, uh, she's a school board member, she says they probably shouldn't allow uh, Christianity uh, to do things, Christians to do things like, like collaborate with the schools or rent school property, that sort of thing. They shouldn't have dealings with the Christians. This is this is our country, which 50 years ago had a culture that that reflected. Well, not 50 years ago, like 100 years ago. I forget how old I am. So you lose your religion, you lose your identity. They are this idea that I can have a national identity without having a religious identity. I don't think it works, but. You know, people come from different countries and, and settle here, and their kids think that ah, religion, that's the old country. And I'm not a Catholic anymore because, well, that's what we were in the old country. Now I'm now I'm American. I don't have any religion. I mean, if you don't have a religion, you don't have an identity. And not just a Christian religion, but um, pick your identity. I'm Okay, well, let me get back to the reading. So Ezekiel is in the midst of this struggle to maintain 
the identity of this very small group of people from a very small country uh, that that drew its national identity from its devotion to the God who they believed had created all things out of nothing. So he makes the point, if the wicked man turns from his, the sins he has committed he, and keeps all my statutes, he will live and not die. If the if the uh, um, righteous man then departs from righteousness and commits iniquity, well, he shall surely die. And you say the Lord's way is not fair. People say that all the time about God. Well, he's not fair. God isn't nice. No, no, we're the ones who depart from him. He gives us complete freedom and allows us to do what we want. And he gives us freedom so that we can choose him or reject him. Uh, that's That's fair. It's an amazing thing that God will respect our choice, even if we choose the wrong. Um, people don't like that about God. They want everyone to be happy and to go to heaven and to to be, you know, this whole debate we're in now, you know, that people living in in what we have believed to be sin for thousand, two thousand years. Well, is it really nice to exclude them from communion? And again, I just want to remind you, I cannot give, I, a Roman Catholic priest, Cannot give anyone communion. I can't do it. It's, and not I may not do it. I can't do it. I can give you the Eucharist, but I can't give you communion. Only God can give you communion. It, it, communion means intense union. I can give you the Eucharist. I can't give you communion. Now, in certain circumstances, I may not give you the Eucharist because you're living in manifest sin. And it would be a blasphemy. It would be pointless. That's what blasphemy is, to say that it's meaningless. It would be meaningless to give you the Eucharist because there's no way you can enter into full communion with God. You've rejected God. I, you know, I tell you this all the time, and forgive me for being so repetitive. Jesus defined marriage when he said it was not that way in the beginning. But in the beginning... God created man and woman, and for this, a man leaves his mother and father, clings to his woman. The word is not wife, it's woman. He clings to his guinea, his woman, and the two become one flesh. Jesus defines marriage as an exclusive relationship. You leave mother and father. A permanent relationship. He clings to his wife. A fruitful relationship. And the two become one flesh. It doesn't say the two become one spirit. Where do you become one flesh? In your children. Well, what about people who can't have children? By their by their coming together in faithfulness and, and in permanence, they create a safe space. They create a respect for families. And even marriages that cannot have physical children are still about children because it creates a stability for the life of the family. So Jesus defined marriage as a, as an exclusive, permanent, fruitful relationship between a man and a woman. Now, maybe Jesus was wrong, and all of the people who are talking about this today, maybe they're right, and Jesus was wrong. I'm still going to follow Jesus. I don't think he was wrong. I, in fact, think he was God, the Son of God. But then you're free to think Jesus was wrong. It's a free country, and you're free to do as you please, but if you think Jesus was wrong about the basic moral truths by which we have lived our lives, you cannot. Now, I use the word cannot. That means it is not possible, no matter how much smoke and mirrors you indulge in. 
it is not possible for you to enter into a full and intense union with him. Say, I want to be one with you. I want to follow you. And you're wrong about this, Jesus. <laughs> it's just, it's insane. It's insane. You know, we are now the, the, the outcasts because we uh, believe that, that Jesus, God, the Son of God, is right about these things. I, I, I can't see it any other way, but I'll, at any rate, um, moving along here. Well, people do terrible things all the time and they don't die. I'm thinking of Adam and Eve. Uh, the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. They were still talking. They were still breathing, but they were dead. Their souls had died. And we live in a country that is already dead. Now, with great prayer <laughs> and great sacrifice and great um, devotion on the part of those who are followers of Christ, I believe the country can be raised from the dead. But at the moment, much of the country is dead the way that Adam and Eve died after eating the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. And the way that people who turn from virtue to a life of sin, as Ezekiel says today, are dead. They may not, what do you mean I'm dead? I'm walking around talking. No, you're dead. Your soul is dead. All right. Ah, it's Lent. I can talk like this. Let's go to the, the gospel, which is a great, fun gospel. This is the gospel of Matthew, the fifth chapter, the 20th verse. Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, I read this and I think if, that I'm not whole, if I'm not holier than the scribes and the Pharisees, I can't go to heaven. Again, I don't believe it means this. When you see the phrase kingdom of heaven uh, um, in the gospel of Matthew, it's the same as kingdom of God in the gospel of Luke. And you will not, and it means the royal inheritance or the royal nature. Basilea means a royalness, and heaven refers to God. You will not enter into the royalness of God. What does that mean? You have been declared, if you are a follower of Christ and are baptized, you are a prince or princess of the kingdom of God. You have inherited, even though by adoption, but you have still inherited the God's royal nature. But you're not going to enter into that inheritance unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees. They were pretty holy. They followed all the rules twice. I mean, they dotted the I's and crossed the T's extra. I mean, they were perfect. Understand what righteousness means. Righteousness is defined as right relationship to God and your neighbor. Righteousness, I think, in Hebrew, uh, means the very nature of God. And where do we find that nature in the person of Jesus? And what is the nature of Jesus? Well, we look at the cross. We also look at Galatians, the fifth chapter. The fruits of the Spirit are these, love, peace, patience, joy, etc. This is the very personality and character of Jesus. Hence, it is the very character and personality of the Father, because Jesus is the visible image of the invisible Father. We read in the, God, in the letter to the Colossians. So, Righteousness includes mercy, and so often we, like the scribes and Pharisees, think that righteousness is a sort of perfection about the details, and that's a noble and good thing. You know, the righteous person is the one whose credit card is always up to date, his lawn is always mowed, mowed and his children are perfect. We can't stand them. <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm kidding, kidding. Yeah, well, maybe not so much. Righteousness is the reflection of the nature of God. 
a righteous man, a, 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 a tzaddik in Hebrew, is a man whose good deeds far away his bad deeds. Okay, so uh, Jesus is saying that, that following the rules is not enough. You must take the rules into you. You've heard it said to your ancestors, you shall not kill. Whoever kills will be liable to the judgment. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. In other words, you do more. Uh, you f- we, we don't obey the commandments. We fulfill them. Obeying them is part of it, but we fulfill them. In other words, thou shalt not commit adultery. There are all sorts of people who have lousy marriages who've never committed adultery. To fulfill that commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, is is to be is to have your spouse as your dearest friend, and that takes a bit of of effort. Uh, thou shalt not steal. Well, I know people who do not fulfill that commandment. Uh, who have never stolen a thing in their life. They, they think they're righteous because they never take anything that's not theirs. We fulfill the commandment by generosity, um, especially generosity to the poor. And I could use a lot of, I could use a lot more uh, uh, work on that in my life, you know, that, 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 you know, we worry that there won't be enough for us. So we're not generous. If we trust God, we can fulfill that commandment. So we fulfill the law. Let me explain some of these these words. Whoever says to his brother Raka, Raka probably means beaten thin. In other words, like a like a metal or gold, you can beat it so that it's paper thin. That's what Raka is. Something that is shallow. Whoever says to his brother, shallow, meaning he's stupid, will be answerable to the sander. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the fiery Gehenna. Gehenna was a garbage dump in the west of Jerusalem. Um and and it had been a place where children had been sacrificed to the god uh, I believe it was Moloch, and and uh, to, to they tore down the temple to Moloch during the religious reforms of the before the exile, and um, they uh, uh, made the place a garbage dump. So there were always low burning fires there. When you bring your gift to the altar, recall that your brother has anything against you. Not you have anything against your brother, but your brother has anything against you. Examine your conscience and see if you have offended someone. Go and be reconciled with your brother, then come and offer your gift. Settle with your opponent quickly on the way to the court. Otherwise, your opponent will hand you over to the judge. The judge will hand you over to the guard, and you'll be thrown into prison. And then I say to you, you will not be released until you've paid the last penny. Uh, I'm going to talk about the last penny in the word of the day, but... Uh, most people think of this as kind of a proof text for purgatory, and I think it works as that, but I think sometimes we dismiss it just saying, oh, this is a pur- proof text for purgatory, and we move on. It's it's a very profound idea. All right, we will be right back. Uh, we're going to go to a break. We'll come back with letters, and the phones will be opened at 888-914-9149. 888-914-9149. We'll be right back. Our sponsor, the University of Dallas, provides a rigorous liberal arts education that forms the whole person for wisdom, truth, and virtue. Learn more about The Catholic University for Independent Thinkers at RelevantRadio.com forward slash U Dallas. Oh, baby, baby, it's a wild world. It's hard to get by just upon a smile. It's a wild world. 
It is a wild world and getting wilder. Good grief. But, hey, keep your eyes on Jesus. You know, I, I saw the, uh, you know, I, 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 I'm not 100% on the chosen. I'm merely 99% on the chosen. It's, it's pretty good. It, it humanizes Jesus very much, sometimes in a way that, that um, I would not. But, you know, I mean, sometimes it seems the, the big objection I have uh, to the chosen, and I've kept up with it, is the Sermon on the Mount. It is, it is, it is, you know, Jesus is all worried about the sermon and he's practicing and he's rehearsing. He goes off to be alone to rehearse the sermon. He goes off alone to pray to the Father. And I don't think Jesus had to rehearse the sermon in the Mount, on the Mount because from the fullness of the heart, the mouth speaks. Other than that, uh, the Chosen is, is a very beautiful exposition of stories from the gospel we all know. Now, the danger with any kind of biblical movie is um, once we see it, well, that's, we don't read the text of Scripture. And the authors of The Chosen really, uh, the producers of The Chosen really uh, push us to receive, uh, or to, to read the text. But um, uh, the, the, this last, these last two episodes of the, uh, of the third season, the walking on the water scene, is one of the most impressive things I've ever seen in a movie. I mean, it was almost frightening. You really entered in to the terror of the apostles uh, when they saw Jesus walking across the water. It is really, really visually, artistically beautiful, and I think spiritually right on on on, on key. Now, there's a backstory about uh, uh, Peter's wife that is you know it's a backstory it's not biblical at all but it's 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 a beautiful story and you know they they put backstories in i don't know why did i get off on that oh uh, because i'm i'm coming to something uh, a letter uh, um that i got that's very differ difficult all right <clears throat> it seems as if there were to this is a letter from an anonymous person in san diego about bible lineages they're looking for a bible and Oh, did we do the trumpet yet? I don't know if we did the trumpet. There, okay, we're on letters now. Very good. Um, the, can you, ex it's a very difficult letter. <laughs> uh, it seems as if there are two lineages of manuscripts available tra for translation, Antioch and Alexandria. Well, I think by Antioch you mean the Byzantine text or the Textus Receptus, uh, which was uh, popular in Constantinople that seems to have had its roots in uh, in uh, the the text of scripture used by Antioch, the problem with ancient texts is that we are accustomed to perfect reproductions of of written texts. We stick one in the Xerox machine, and something comes out exactly the way it went in. That wasn't true in the ancient world. They had to rely on hand copying, and sometimes the scribes who wrote it and the, the monks who copied it and all these people who were involved in bringing the scriptures forward, sometimes they fell asleep or they got drowsy or they were fasting or something like that, or it was cold in the scriptorium. It is amazing how very, very good the, manus the modern manuscripts we have are uh, considering the difficulty with which they were brought forward. 
Now, there are two texts, principally. The Byzantine, which became the Textus Receptus, which became the base for Erasmus' translation of the New Testament, I believe, and for Luther, uh, Luther and Calvin and uh, the Protestant world and King James Bible go with the Textus Receptus, which means the text, the received text. There is a problem with the received text um, that that um, you got to look at the at the uh, different manuscript. The New Testament has been preserved in more than five thousand eight hundred Greek manuscripts, ten thousand Latin manuscripts, and nine thousand three hundred manuscripts in other ancient languages like Syria, Syriac, Slavic, Ethiopic, Armenian. There are approximately three hundred textual variants among the manuscripts, most of them being changes of word order or other comparative trivialities. Uh, this is amazing. First of all, there are so many. Uh, ancient uh, texts of the scripture that come from the first few centuries of Christianity. Uh, amazing. However, one of the problems is that that um, the the Codex Alex uh, is it the Codex Alexandrinus, the the Alexandrian uh, Codex seems to go back to more ancient manuscripts than the Byzantine text. And you say that to the right people and you're going to get punched. Um, people uh, will argue that the word of God is the Texas Receptus and nothing else. The whole thing rests on, I want the exact text. Why do you want the exact text? Well, I want to know what's the, what is the exact Bible. I want it, I want it perfect. You know what? By the time you read it, it's not going to be perfect. And this brings us back to my problems with with The Chosen, because in a generation, it's a great, great work. And I, I think, as I say, it's 99% wonderful and 1% not so good. The problem is, we all know that there was a Persian rug at the Last Supper because it's in Da Vinci's painting. <laughs> no, there's no Persian rug in Da Vinci's painting, and Da Vinci's painting was made 1,400 years after, but... <laughs> We see something in our children's Bible, and that's the way it is. You know, I, I get into more arguments with people about the Sermon on the Mount. You know, Jesus standing on the Mount and talking to the people gathered on the Mount. That didn't happen. That's not what the Bible says happened. I think I've said that four times in the past two weeks. First of all, Jesus was sitting, and he was speaking to his disciples. When a rabbi spoke authoritatively to his disciples, he sat, just as when a bishop gives a gives the... Uh, 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 the uh, instruction of an ordination. He sits in his teaching chair. Uh, this is what rabbis did. So Jesus was speaking to a small group while seated, not a big group while standing. But of course, we all know that Jesus stood and was at the top of the mountain for the Sermon on the Mount because we saw a picture of that when we were eight. You follow? So people are going to look at this and say, well, we all know that Matthew uh, was um, was autistic and had obsessive compulsive disorder. No, we don't. That's not biblical. But it makes a great backstory, but, and it's really endearing. But you see the problem with this. What what something like, and I think the, the producers of uh, uh, The Chosen would agree with me on this, the deal is, this should make you want to read the scriptures and see what's exactly in them, uh, that they might speak to you. Well, that's, I want the exact Bible. Well, you're never going to get it, because it's going to be filtered through your perceptions of the Bible. And probably the better text is the Alexandrian text. The Byzantine text is a little later. But the differences are so small, 
that they are immaterial. So I don't know that, you know, I don't need to be snarky about it, but I don't know that your, uh, um, your question is answerable. You know, uh, he also mentions the Didache. It seems they went back and correlated that version to King James uh, version 1611 versions, which got, yeah, they, they use King James English because it was old English people or English scholars who translated the Didache first into English. You know, the thing, if you really want to be serious about it, learn Greek and Hebrew. It's not that hard. Every three-year-old in Athens spoke Greek, and every three-year-old in, in Jerusalem spoke and speaks Hebrew. So, uh, you know, go for it um, if you're, you're serious about it. It's quite doable to to uh, to read these, these things in their original. Um, <clears throat> I, that sounds a little bit... And I'm not being arrogant about it. You can do it. Anybody can. If I can do it, anybody can do it, frankly. So, um, you know, uh, the, the, the translations that you're going to get, there's no such thing as a perfect translation. It's filtered through the mind of the translator, and it's filtered through the mind of the reader. So it's a constant struggle. All right, I hope that helps a little. I'm, I'm, I, I don't, as I say, mean to be difficult. This is from... Um, uh, uh, Lucy, this is really, really good. Um, uh, uh, this is the blood covenant. I, you know, I, I, I was talking about uh, covenants, you know, the sacrifice of Cain and Abel. Why was Abel's acceptable and Cain's wasn't? And I believe that's because uh, you can't make a covenantal sacrifice without the shedding of blood. Cain wanted a contract with God. Abel wanted a covenant with God. A covenant is I give you myself that you might give me yourself. A contract is only I give you something that you might give me something. When the when the business is over, the relationship is ended. A covenant is forever. As long as both covenanters live. Now, this is interesting because there's the covenant with Adam and Eve. Where's the blood? Well, this is a... Uh, um, uh, she quotes, she thinks it's Dr. Han, maybe somebody else, but I bet it's Dr. Han because he's really smart. Uh, um, Dr. Han, but may, maybe another theologian, speaks of the blood of the animals that God shed to cover Adam and Eve after the fall to clothe their nakedness. They wore garments of skins, and there would have been shedding of blood to get the skins. So I, I thought that was very interesting because uh, that that there, in a sense, wasn't a covenant. There was just reality before the fall. But then after the fall, God said, I, I still love you and I give you myself here. Wear these. Um, uh, that, that's, I like that answer very much. And I'm going to have to think about that. So thanks much for that. All right. Let us go to, um, <laughs> this is just kind of fun that I would talk about Chicago wheeze, the phrase devotees, which means the both of you. That's the dual pejorative. And when somebody says devotees, you, devotees, uh, uh, that's never good. <laughs> I want to see the Bodies right now in my office, that sort of thing. Well, somebody sent, and this is from Tim, who um, mentioned something his mother said, euphoria. <laughs> I want to see you kids in the tub right now, euphoria. <laughs> I thought that was pretty good. I don't know. It's just kind of fun. Oh, if you don't laugh, you cry. I got another one here. Let's see here. This is from Raymond. Um Hi, Father Simon. Lately, our pastor's been leaving the extra wine and water on the altar during the consecration. Is that wrong? It bothers me because I believe wine and water are both consecrated and should be treated as such. No, it's not necessarily wrong. Um, 
that that it was the custom to be on the safe side in the old the old mass to make sure that the cruets, which might have more wine in them left over, you know, you don't use a whole cruet usually, just a little bit of wine will do, and uh, um, there's some left over, and the altar boy or, or the server, whoever, takes it and, you know, off the altar. But if a priest is saying Mass without Mass servers, he might leave it right there on the altar. You have to intend to consecrate uh, uh, bread and wine. And the consecration isn't just like tag your it. The, the celebrant must make an intention to consecrate bread and wine, and to do what the Church does and to say what the Church says. Uh, we make a promise when we are ordained to consecrate everything automatically, that is on the pall, or rather the corporal. The corporal is the cloth that the priest unfolds, and it shouldn't be left on the altar. There's a tendency to leave it on the altar now. It's, in effect, a sacred vessel, and it's there to catch uh, the sacred host when it breaks, uh, and any leftovers of the sacred host and to be cleansed properly. So that corporal should be folded up and put away. Uh, many people don't do that because, well, things liturgical law got kind of sloppy. So if something is on the corporal, even if I'm distracted, I have intended to consecrate that. The priest, in order to consecrate the extra wine that was in a cruet on the edge of the altar, would have to intend to consecrate it. So it does not become the body and blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. So I don't think you have to worry about it, Raymond. I hope that helps. You know, I always talk about the, you know, the, 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 the idea that we have to have an exact formula in prayer. In the sacraments, we do have to have an exact formula because the sacrament doesn't belong to me, the priest. It belongs to the church throughout history. And I must intend and do and say what the church intends and does and says to validly create that, that, that symbol and reality of the covenant with God. Which sacraments are, I believe. All right, moving along here. Let me look. Oh, we'll take a break now. We'll come back with a word of the day. Um, and okay, the phones are open at 888-914-9149. 888-914-9149. We will be right back, I hope. Battling addictions? Our sponsor, St. Gregory Recovery Center, can help you or a loved one live a substance-free life. Information at RelevantRadio.com slash Gregory. That's RelevantRadio.com slash Gregory. How many times must the cannonballs fly before they're forever banned? The answer, my friend. A song from my hippy-dippy youth. I, I guess when I hear it, there's still a little of the hippie left in me. I just don't think war is a good idea. Sometimes I suppose it's necessary, but it's not a good idea. So, yeah, Lord, Our Lady Queen of Peace, pray for us. All right, let's move along here. Let us go now to the word of the day. In the text of Scripture... Amen, I say to you, you will not be released until you have paid the last penny. Well, that intrigued me. A penny? What is a penny? In, in, uh, in Latin, it is, or in the, in the Greek text, it is, uh, the, which is interesting. It's eschaton, which is the word last. We talk about eschatology. 
the study of the final things. The eschaton is the end of all things, the apocalypse, the, the last judgment, that sort of thing. But that's not, you know, it's just kind of interesting until they paid the eschatological penny, the last penny. But what I'm really interested in the word is the word for for penny. It's quadrantis, which is the Greek version of a Latin word, and, and that Latin word is quadrans, which is a Greek coin or a Roman coin, uh, which means one quarter of an as. As, spelled A-S, was a, a very, very um, uh, um, small copper coin. And this was a, a 16th part of a sestertius. Does that help? I don't think so. Essentially, it was about a nickel. So until the last nickel is paid, you won't be let out of prison. The interesting thing about this is the idea of debtor's prison. Uh, this is an interesting thing. People will say, how is he going to pay that money if he's in jail? The idea is those who loved him, his family would pay it. Ah, that was what debtor's prison was about. Those who cared for you would, would, would pay your debt and you would get out of prison. To me, this is significant in the text because if we if we have lived our lives in absolute isolation and selfishness, if our lives are just a narcissist's tableau, well, guess what? We're going to be in there a long time. And the real thing, you know, this purgatory business, I think this can be used as a, a proof text for purgatory. I think a better one is sins that are forgiven in the present age and in the age to come. But um, uh, this idea that someone is going to pay my debt... Um, and I say to you, you will not be released unless until you have paid the last penny. Um, who pays our debt? Christ, if we ask him to. And his requirement is that we forgive as we are forgiven. So this idea of the last penny, um, if we insist on living our lives alone, in effect, we are condemning ourselves to a prison. You know, and many of us live lives alone, but... We don't have to. I mean, and I'm not talking about going to the party. I'm talking about who are you Who are you devoted to? For whom do you pray? Um, even if you are forced to live alone and you are infirm, you can pray for others. You can live a social life, a life of service, even if you are shut in by a life of prayer. Uh, if you can't get out, do you call people who need to hear from you? I was just thinking of you and... And, uh, uh, you know, wonder how you're doing, that kind of thing. So Jesus said elsewhere, make friends with what you have, <laughs> that they might receive you into the everlasting dwelling. All right, let's go to phone calls. Yellow. Jeff, what can I do for you? Hey, Father. Uh, great talking to you. I uh, love the show. Um, hey, I think you answered my question. Uh, you started talking about the chosen, and um, yeah. you were talking about the uh, Sermon on the Mountain uh, and the final. Uh, that was like the season two finale, and uh, I wanted to get your take on that too because I kind of thought they were using artistic license a little too far 
Um, I yes. don't think they built a stage for him. I don't think they I had don't think curtains. So. And it was like, <laughs> it, 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 it kind of looked more like a rock concert of today than uh, Or the Muppet Show. I the Muppet Show. Really did. <laughs> yeah, that too. Yes, um, yeah, the Muppet yeah, Show. You know, I <laughs> could, could have Matthew uh, maybe wrote things down and helped him out. I don't think Jesus would have needed to remember stuff, but... Uh, yeah, he probably could have, but I, I thought that was uh, a little little over the top where yeah. they built a stage yeah. and, and, and curtains and everything. I just wanted to get your take on it, but I think you kind of, while I was on hold, Way I heard you, and uh, I think yeah. you kind of answered Way. my question. <laughs> well, the thing is, they're working hard on this, and they're working hard to make it make even the backstory plausible in terms of the scriptures. And generally, they do a great job, but this text is, is clear. Jesus went up the mountain, called his disciples to him. He saw the crowd. He went up the mountain. In other words, we got to get away from all these people. I just want to talk to you. And his disciples came to him and he sat down, sitting down. He opened his mouth and he said, that's a, a stock phrase. He gave them his solemn teaching. You know, Jesus walking around and standing on the mountain. That's not Bible. And, and I was kind of, you know, I was kind of, uh, you know, the, the, the multiplication of the loaves was beautiful. But to me, the, in, the, in this uh, end of this season, the walking on the water was was intensely powerful. I, so yeah, great, I haven't but, seen season three yet. Oh, but, um, yeah, it's worth it. It's worth it, too, with, with the whole um, what you just said, too, um, where, yeah, you know, it, it kind of like Jesus, they, they didn't need like the uh, the apostles uh we're handing out flyers for the event. Yeah, they had flyers. Yes, and flyers. And, 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 you know, no, it did not happen. You know they didn't have flyers it, in the ancient what, world. Right. It, well, pa- uh, paper was hard to come by then. Very and hard also, to come by. If they wanted to put something on a wall, they just scrawled it on the wall. Pompeii's covered with advertising <laughs> the walls. Right. And then you just whitewash the wall when you were sick of it. Yeah, they didn't have – the paper was a rarity. They, they wouldn't have had flyers. It's, I forgot about that right. point. And, yeah, and and also, also Jesus didn't need to advertise anything. They found him. They he would he would try to go away. It was the pray. opposite. They, correct me if yeah, I'm wrong. Yeah, the talking. opposite. He would try to go. He'd away work and a miracle. Yeah, well, he'd work a miracle, and he'd say, "Don't tell anyone about this." It's the opposite. He was trying to stay under 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 the radar. Amazing. What? It is, you know. But you know, I think I think one of the, this is there's a Catholic. Uh, uh, a Messianic Jewish rabbi, a Catholic priest, a Messianic Jewish rabbi, and an evangelical professor who are consulting on this. I mean, they're doing their best to make this universal in terms of its appeal to Christians. Um, but, but I cannot help but think that, you know, there is, you know, evangelical Christianity is in a great crisis. I don't think people realize this. Um, I think one of the finest movies about, about, uh, the finest defense of classical Pentecostalism is the movie, uh, The Apostle with, is it Robert De Niro? I forget. Uh, but, uh, uh, he, 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 uh, what's the word? He, uh, rejects the, the megachurch. But the megachurch thing is kind of, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of become evangelical entertainment. And I think that there's a problem there. But, you know, I, I'm being real critical, but The Chosen is a, is a great work. I, I don't want anybody to not watch it uh, because of what I say. It, it's, as I say, I'm 99% sold on it. It's just that little 1% on these little points. Let's just say, so thanks for calling in, Jeff. God bless. I got to move on because I talk too much. Let's go to Steve, who's calling from Bozeman, Montana. Steve, what can I do for you? Yeah, uh, Father, um, it, it it it's coming. You know, we're in Lent, and, um, and uh, yeah. I'd like to go to confession. 
Um, and when I was younger, I was pretty scrupulous. Um, I could remember yeah. everything that happened, dates, times, mm-hmm. and, and now I'm older, and um, my I just can't remember things. Like, I can't remember if stuff happened before my last confession or after. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I also think maybe it's not just a memory issue, but maybe it's a little bit of grace from God to not be so scrupulous. <laughs> yeah. But, oh, um, yes. I just, yeah. I just wanted to see what your thoughts are about um, yes. kind of how to approach confession when you're, you're pretty fuzzy on, on the details. Okay. First of all, uh, you need only confess mortal sins. Those sins must be confessed. And they must be convinced, bless me, Father, I committed adultery eight times. You pretty much have a memory of that. Or if you are living in an adulterous relationship, you say, I am living in this relationship. I don't know how many times I have committed adultery, but I'm living in an adulterous relationship. That is fine. The point is, you don't want to be caught in the position of hiding something from the Lord or hiding some, trying to hide something from the Lord and hiding something from your confessor. If you do your best to remember, then this, the confession is sufficient. If at a later point you remember, oh, I should have said this in confession, say it the next time you go. But it has been forgiven because your intention was to make a good confession and that's what counts. God reads the heart. So uh, just understand that that uh, if you miss a sin or forget a sin, especially if it is not a mortal sin, you don't have to worry about it. Uh, the very act of penance uh, forgives mortal or forgives venial sin. If you remember mortal sin, you failed to confess. Confess it next time. But because of your the purity of your intention, it has been. It has been forgiven in, in, by the grace of the sacrament. So take a deep breath, relax, and just understand that God really loves you, and he wants to get you to heaven even more than you want to go there. So I hope that helps, okay. Steve. God bless, and thanks for calling in. Does that answer the question? Yes, sir. Is it? Good, good. Let's go to Allie, who's calling in from California. Are you with us, Allie? Yes, I am, Father. Hi. Good. Thank you for everything good. you do. My, well, my I'm having question, fun. Father, um, <laughs> That's good. Uh, my question is, is it appropriate and uh, relevant for women to participate um, and help the priest during adoration by providing the vestments and or the um, actual incense? Is that appropriate? And I humbly ask. Well, it depends on why. If it is because a woman wants to make a political statement, that's utterly inappropriate. If it's because the priest needs help, it's appropriate. You know that that uh, um, that has changed in 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 church law. Uh, there's no biblical prohibition, though it does seem a little odd to us, because especially as older folks are used to the other. But uh, there is no prohibition that I know of about it. Uh, however, to use any sacrament or sacramental uh, or devotion uh, to make a political statement is 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 blasphemous it's morally wrong it, it it's it's trying to use the things of god uh for our own benefit which is not good so i i you know if 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 the priest needs help uh and he asks a woman would could you could you bring me the cope at this certain point that that's fine um, I, I went on a long screen. I'm going to probably next week talk about it again about about altar girls and altar boys. I I'm opposed in most situations to altar children, but I'm kind of odd that way. But you know that that um, 
I, I don't think there's anything intrinsically wrong with it. In it, it's not the custom in the in the traditional, uh, uh, you know, the the Vetus order, the old order, uh, but it is in the Novus order, the new order. So that's the best I can tell you. So I think. Do we have time for another call? Dear voice in my head, Kathy from New Jersey, are you with us? What can I do for you? Um, can you hear me? Yes, of course. Okay. My question is, if you are a Eucharistic minister, which mm-hmm. I never feel, uh, what's the word? I never feel um, privileged in any way to do that. I just feel devoted to it. In that devotion, when you are sharing the Eucharist, you said before that you can't give communion, and I get that. But is there a better yeah. connection when you're sharing it if you feel such devotion? Um, I don't know that it's a better connection. Uh, it's a more, uh, it's something I like better when I feel devotion. But real love is when you do it and you don't feel it. Like Mother Mother Teresa, she didn't feel it for years and she still did it. So sometimes God asks us, if there's nothing in this for you, will you still follow? So it isn't better. It's just a different way of God calling you. And religious emotions are gifts from God to be appreciated but they aren't constituent of, of love. Love is what we do, not just what we feel. And speaking of what we do, Drew does a real good job, so don't go anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> 